George Whitfield ranks among the greatest English-speaking preachers who has ever lived. In the course of his very brief 56-year life, Whitfield crossed the Atlantic Ocean seven times, and he did that in the 18th century when sailing ships had no motors and were at the mercy of the wind and the waves. And Whitfield made all of those oftentimes very terrifying voyages across the ocean in order to preach the gospel back and forth between the eastern United States and England, Scotland, and Ireland. Whitfield was one of the key preachers used powerfully and mightily of God in the first great awakening. And what, speaking of the profound power of Whitfield's preaching, it, it was described, thankfully we have record of it, from many who heard him, had the opportunity to go and hear him preaching live. Even people like Benjamin Franklin and the philosopher David Hume, who weren't believers, they remarked at how powerful Whitfield was as he preached. And Whitfield's habit was to preach to crowds of people, sometimes numbering in the thousands out in the open air, keep in mind before the advent of the microphone, preaching to thousands in the open air in fields and in large open spaces. Well, in the roughly 30 years of his ministry leading up to his death, Whitfield persevered despite real opposition. The Church of England, who were suspicious of Whitfield's insistence on the new birth, they had all but barred him from speaking inside their churches hence his preaching in large open-air spaces. And as he preached his heart out in those open-air settings, he encountered many distasteful things from those who opposed him. For instance, there is record on occasion of dead cats being thrown at him as he preached. People climbing up trees behind where he was preaching to mock him and to do other vile, unmentionable things that would purposely distract his listeners. At one point when he was in Dublin, Whitfield was attacked by an angry mob. On another occasion, a man tried to kill him by clubbing him in the head with a brass-headed cane. On still another occasion, a woman attacked him with a pistol and a pair of scissors. But through all of it, Whitfield persevered, sometimes preaching morning, noon, and night in a given day. Whitfield's story is an inspiring story of keeping the word of Jesus over many years despite serious opposition. 
Well, friends, this morning we come to the sixth of the seven churches in our study of the churches in Revelation, and this is the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia is commended by its Lord and head, Jesus Christ, commended for keeping his word despite opposition. And Jesus blesses them and he mightily encourages them and gives them great assurances and promises because they are keeping his word. You and I, as his church in 2021, are mightily encouraged through this passage from the word of God, mightily encouraged to be keepers of the word of Jesus even through times when we are encountering hostility for our witness. Amen? Be keepers of the word, even in times when we are encountering hostility for our witness. Now, just so that we are clear, Jesus is not addressing this letter to the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, USA. Okay, I just want to get that out there off the bat. There was a Philadelphia in Asia Minor in the first century. It sat on what is currently the town of Al-Shahir in Turkey. Jesus is addressing his church in that Philadelphia. Okay, just so we're clear, not the Philadelphia that's a seven-hour drive south of here. This ancient city of Philadelphia was situated in a volcanic area, meaning that there were frequent earthquakes there. Daryl Johnson tells us, quote, that whenever a quake struck, the people of Philadelphia would flee the city. When the aftershock subsided, they would return. He says, the people of Philadelphia were always, listen, they're always going out and coming in. They were always fleeing the city and returning to it, close quote. Well, I want you to just put that piece of information in your back pocket because we will return to that just a little bit later. But let's go to the word of God now, to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, which begins at Revelation 3, verse 7. Again, Jesus speaking to his church, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now I want you to notice with me, first of all, that our Lord Jesus describes himself with these terms, the Holy One and the True One. Now in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the phrase, Holy One of Israel, is found about 25 times in the book of Isaiah, each time as a title of Yahweh, God of Israel. Here in Revelation 3.7, we have the Son of God, Jesus, applying this title, Holy One, to himself, suggesting very strongly in this passage his deity, his divine intimate relationship to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is, friends, the Holy God. Do you know him that way? 
the holy God. He is the pure God. He is the one who is completely and utterly consecrated in every way to his Father. And Jesus is the true one. Yes? In John 14, 6, Jesus calls himself the truth. And here he is the true one. There is nothing untrue about Jesus Christ. And we live in a world where it's getting increasingly difficult to find truth, correct? There is nothing untrue about Jesus Christ. He is, we need to understand, utterly trustworthy in every way. Our Lord who is ministering to us here today right now is holy and he is true. And, says Jesus, I am the one who has what? The key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to do a little work together. You ready to do a little bit of work this morning? Probably not what you want to do on Sunday morning. But here we are. We have to do a little work. We have to see that this language of key of David is alluding back to the 22nd chapter of Isaiah. So I invite you to track with me here. In the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, we're going back to the Old Testament, in that chapter, there is a prophecy concerning a change in the senior administration of Judah. A change in the senior administration of Judah. In verse 20 of that chapter, God promises there to install a person named Eliakim as the senior administrative person, the bigwig, within the government of King Hezekiah. God declares that a massive part of the responsibility over Judah will fall to this Eliakim, this senior minister in the cabinet. You tracking with me so far? And in verse 22... God says of Eliakim, in the original context of Isaiah, he says, I will place on his shoulder, what? The key of the house of who? David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? So the idea in the Isaiah passage is that Eliakim was being bestowed with significant political authority, significant political power over the kingdom of Judah. Well, now let's come back to Revelation 3.7. Jesus, of course, is definitely alluding to the story of Eliakim, and Jesus is saying this. Actually, it's not Eliakim or anyone else who has the key to the Davidic kingdom of Judah now. It's me that does. I, says Jesus, I have authority over God's kingdom, over the whole kingdom of God. I have the key of David. 
And of course, the difference between Eliakim's authority and the authority of Jesus is that Eliakim's authority was limited only to Judah for that very brief time when he was alive. In the case of the risen Jesus Christ, we are dealing with who? We are dealing with the one who has, Matthew 28, how much authority? All authority over what? Over the earth and in heaven. He's got all authority, universal authority over all peoples, and Jesus has that authority for all eternity. Do you know Jesus as the Holy One, the true one, the one with all authority. I hope that you do. Jesus is far better. He is far more powerful. He is far more authoritative than all of the Eliakims that our world could ever hope to produce. So we're only in verse 7. And by the time we get done with verse 7, we feel like worshiping. At least I hope you do. The head of our church, the one with us right now in this service, is holy, true, and full of authority. And my friend, that sort of vision of Jesus Christ, if you take it in, if you digest it in your bones, and if you hold fast to it, it can carry you through whatever you might be subjected to this week. Jesus is holy, he is true, he has all authority in every single instance and situation in your life. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 22 here, uh, as we've already noted, verse 22 of that chapter, including this business of opening and shutting. Jesus says, I open and no one will shut, I shut and no one opens. Again, this has to do with the authority of Jesus Christ, the universal authority that he has. Now listen, in the context of the Church of Philadelphia and what they were walking through, so many of these believers in Jesus had come recently into the Christian faith from a Jewish background. But because they were now confessing Jesus, because they were now following Jesus, the door to the Jewish synagogue was being slammed shut in their faces. They were being locked out of the synagogue community. The door was shut because of the fact that they were now confessing Jesus, following him, they were being ostracized and disowned by the Jewish community, including, in many cases, being disowned by members of their own families. Jesus comes here and he says to these hurting believers, listen to what he says. In essence, he says this, you may have the door of the Jewish synagogue shut in your faces, but you have to remember, church, I am the one with the key of David. And I have flung open the doors to you to enter in to the only synagogue that really matters, the true kingdom, my kingdom, enter in. 
This seventh verse would have been a great encouragement to a beleaguered church community there in first century Philadelphia. And in verse eight, notice he keeps talking about this open door. Now many of us have read this passage in terms of the open door relating to evangelism. I don't think that's the case in this instance. There are plenty of other passages in the New Testament that where an open door obviously relates to evangelism, but there's nothing in the context here that suggests that it's about that. So in verse eight, Jesus keeps talking about this open door. He says, notice, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, because the door's being slammed shut in your faces by the Jewish synagogue. I, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And then he says to his church, I know, this is Jesus speaking to his church friend, I know that you have little power. How's that for calling a spade a spade? 21st century church. I know that you have little power. Who's this coming from? This is coming from the perspective of the one who has how much power? unlimited power, right? And he says to his church, I know that you have little power. The church in Philadelphia was a church in the infancy of the Christian movement. They had no clout. They had no influence in matters of government. They had no stature amongst the elites of the city the political elites, this church met in homes with small numbers of people. They had no great buildings. They were not recognized as any great organization. They fit, actually, the description that Jesus gives in Luke 12, 32. They fit the description of little flock. Little flock. I know that you have little power. But guess what, friends? They did have something. This church had something entirely praiseworthy for which Jesus now blesses them and commends them. He says, you have little power, and yet, what? You have done what? Kept my word and have not denied my name. So despite the door of the Jewish synagogue being shut in their faces, despite the trouble that many of them were experiencing with family members because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, despite the powerlessness that was their situation there in this, this city. Despite all of the trouble that they faced, they remained faithful to Jesus Christ. Amen? They kept his word. They did not deny his name in the way that Peter once had. They persevered through opposition and through trouble like George Whitfield did many centuries after them. 
church of Jesus Christ, we can be powerless. We can be shut out. We can be persecuted and we can be ostracized and we can be ridiculed, but Jesus is after our faithfulness to him through all of it. I wonder, are you traveling through a difficulty right now? I exhort you to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Keep his word. Remember who it is who you worship. He is the one with all authority. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And he never stops for one millisecond being faithful to you. So my friend, be weak. It's actually a great place to be in the Christian faith. Be weak, but remain faithful to the ever-faithful Jesus. He loves you. He loves his church. Now watch with me now in verses 9 and 10. (laughs) If you don't feel like worshiping yet, I hope you will. When we get into verses 9 and 10, watch how Jesus goes to battle for us. How Jesus goes to work for us in his almighty power. Here's what he says to his weak church, to his beleaguered church with little power. He says, behold, that's the biblical zoom in word, right? The camera, you're supposed to look up, behold with your eyes, see what I will do. And then what does he say? I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, church, and they will learn that I have loved you. In essence, Jesus says here that he will personally deal with those people who had been slamming the door of the synagogues shut in the faces of both Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. He will personally deal with those enemies of the gospel. And once again, Jesus here is alluding back to the book of Isaiah. Specifically, he's alluding back to Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14, where in the original context of Isaiah, God was going to cause the enemies of Israel to come bowing down before Israel. Now here in Revelation 3.9, it's the enemies of the church that God the Son is going to cause to come bowing down to the church. And those enemies of the church will be taken, notice, taken to the school of Jesus. They will learn, is the word that's used here. They're taken to school. They will learn from him that he has loved his church. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but this is a fantastic encouragement to us as his church. Amen? We have a warrior king. The one with the key of David. We we have as our head the Holy One. 
the true one, the one with all authority, fighting for us. Amen? We ought to be shouting right about now. Fighting for us. If we find ourselves opposed, if we find ourselves persecuted, if we find ourselves weak because of our keeping of his word, he promises to triumph over our enemies. And then in verse 10, Jesus comes right back to this theme of the church keeping his word. Notice it, it's here again. Because you have what? Kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Jesus himself, think about Jesus himself and his life, he had patiently endured suffering and mocking at the hands of people. And he teaches us to endure likewise when we encounter trials. And the church in Philadelphia was keeping that word of Jesus to endure, endure like he did. They were keeping that word. They had been keeping his word about patient endurance. And now Jesus will reciprocate that keeping of his word. Now he will keep them, as he says here, you have kept my word, now I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth now. I want you to think hard with me about this latter part of verse 10. Let's try to work through this together. And what I want us to focus on, first of all, is the word trial. Jesus says that an hour of trial is coming on the whole world. If you have the King James Version of Scripture in front of you this morning, you'll notice that the translation choice here is not the word trial, but it's the word temptation. The hour of temptation. And if you have the New American Standard Version of the Bible in front of you, you'll notice that the translation committee has opted for the word testing. The hour of testing. So, testing, temptation, trial. English translation committees, as they look at the original Greek of the text, have opted to translate it in different ways. Each of them is a viable translation. Jesus says here to his church, there is an hour of testing, temptation, trial that is coming, is coming on the whole world. Now, it's hard to decide if we look at this verse objectively. It's hard to decide whether the hour of testing was something immediate to the church in Philadelphia, perhaps happening in the early part of the second century, or whether Jesus is talking here about an hour of trial that was distantly future to them and perhaps even future to us. But regardless of the timeline of the trial, notice here that Jesus says that when it comes, it's going to affect the whole world. 
the whole world will have an awareness of this trial. It will have a worldwide effect. But now going even further in the verse, toward the end of it, I want us to pay close attention to the specific target and aim. The specific target and aim of this hour of testing. Notice this. Think through this with me. Jesus says that this hour of testing is coming on the whole world to do what? To try, or we could translate that, to test those who dwell on earth. So the target of this hour of trial is those who dwell on earth, it's the target, and the aim of this trial is to try or test those who dwell on earth. Now, in the book of Revelation, we need to see this very carefully, in the book of Revelation, John uses this phrase, those who dwell on earth, or dwellers on earth. He uses this phrase frequently, listen, to describe unbelievers. Or we could say to describe unbelieving idolaters. Unbelieving idolaters. So here are some examples. In Revelation 6 verse 10, those who dwell on earth are the people who have killed Christian martyrs. And in Revelation 11, verse 10, those who dwell on earth are those who rejoice and exchange gifts because God's two prophets have been killed. And in Revelation 13, verse 8, those who dwell on earth are the ones who are worshiping the beast and in Revelation 13, 11, those who dwell on earth are those who are deceived by the second beast. And in Revelation 17, verse 2, those who dwell on earth are those who are drunk with sexual immorality. And so as Greg Beale has pointed out, this phrase, those who dwell on earth in this book of Revelation, he says, quote, it is a technical term for unbelieving idolaters, which means that the target and the aim of this hour of testing in our verse is unbelieving idolaters. God's target is those who dwell on earth, unbelieving idolaters. As for his believing, persevering church, Jesus promises here, I will keep you from, I will keep you from this hour of testing. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean, Jesus, that you will remove your church from the earth altogether when that hour comes, when you test unbelieving idolaters across the globe? No. It doesn't mean that he will remove his church physically from the earth in that hour. After all, I want you to listen very carefully to how Jesus prayed in 
John 17, 15, where the Greek is strikingly similar to our verse. I want you to listen to how he prayed in that verse, the high priestly prayer. Just prior to him being crucified, he's praying concerning his disciples. Jesus prayed to his father, listen, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Yes, Father, my disciples are experiencing trial and testing on this earth, but don't remove them from the earth. Instead, as they walk through that testing and trial, protect them from the evil one. Revelation 3.10 is not teaching that there is an escape hatch for the church in the hour of trial. After all, we've, studied, we've already studied the letters to the churches in Smyrna and in Pergamum, and we saw there that believers were left there in those cities neck deep in intensifying trial and testing. Antipas even died for his witness to Jesus Christ. God was not removing any of them from their tribulation. Rather, he was at work to keep them from the evil one in the hour of trial, and he was teaching them golden lessons about perseverance spiritually, and he was sustaining them through all of it. So then when Jesus promises in our verse to keep his church from the hour of testing, what he means is not that he's going to grant an escape for his church, but that he will give endurance for his church. The trial will come on the whole world, Jesus says. The effects are going to be felt in some measure by everybody, but the specific targets of God's judgment are those who dwell on earth, the unbelieving idolaters. As for the church that remains on earth during this trial, Jesus is going to grant endurance. He's going to grant sustaining power. He's going to keep his church from the hour of testing, not by removing or evacuating them, but by keeping them from the evil one and by sustaining them with his power. Now, at the start of the sermon today, we talked a little bit about the earthquake-prone area in which this church of Philadelphia was situated. Lots of quaking, lots of shaking, lots of rattling, people fleeing the city when a quake happened, returning to the city after the aftershocks had cooled down. What has Jesus just promised in verse 10? He's promised that an hour of shaking and quaking was coming. An hour of trial on the whole world. Now, what do you do when the whole world starts shaking violently? You grab onto something, right? You grip onto something with all your might and you hold on. In verse 11, Jesus says to his church, I am coming soon. Blessed promise. Maranatha, we say, wrap this up, Jesus, and come. I am coming soon. Hold fast. Are you holding fast? 
Hold fast to what you have. Grab on to your faith. And don't let go. When everything is shaking, church, then hold on. Persevere with the gospel front and center in your consciousness. Keep on running to the finish line. Don't allow your gold medal, your victor's crown, to be seized away from you, as he says here. Onward, Christian soldiers. Verse 12. The one who, what? conquers in this way, I will make him or her what? A pillar. You conquer, you'll be made a pillar in the temple of my God, says Jesus. Now, in, or in and around Philadelphia, there were a whole lot of broken and fractured pillars as a result of all the earthquakes, but here Jesus is talking about a different kind of pillar, isn't he? He's talking about a pillar that is going to be lastingly secure and strong and permanent and stable. He's talking, my friend, about you conquering saint of God. You will be a pillar in the new temple of God. Now, Jesus knows that right now you and I have little power. As he said back in verse 8, he knows we are weak, but he promises here to make us strong, permanent pillars in, the, in God's eternal temple. Now, what's the temple? We know from reading our Bible that the temple is the locus of God's presence. It's where God dwells. The temple is where God is, where he dwells. And to be a pillar in that temple means what? It means that you are permanently fixed in the presence of God. Amen? Permanently fixed in the presence of God. So the promise here is that the conquering saint of God will never leave the presence of God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Can you imagine? We're used to second-rate pleasures, aren't we, on this earth? We will be pillars in the temple as conquering saints there to enjoy the pleasures and the bounty and the love and the favor of God for all eternity. Jesus says here, never shall he go out of it. <laughs> the pillar is never going to leave the temple of God. The, the people in Philadelphia, we remember, were used to going out of the city in an earthquake, coming back after the aftershocks were done, going out again when a new earthquake happened, coming back, but Jesus here is promising his church a permanent, fixed dwelling in the temple in the immediate presence of God. Never shall he go out of it. As my friend and professor James Hamilton has put it, there will be no end to our enjoyment of God's presence. <laughs> no end to our enjoyment of God's presence. And Jesus continues here, I will write on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Friends, there's a triple blessing here, a triple naming. 
In verse 8, Jesus commended the church in Philadelphia for not denying his name, even through all the trouble that they had been encountering. Now Jesus promises his conquering church, who have not denied his name, he promises them a triple blessing of naming. On each pillar, on each saint in God's eternal temple will be written three names, notice, the name of God, the name of the city, and the new name of Jesus. In Isaiah 56, verse 5, God promised that those who kept his covenant, keepers of his word, those who kept his covenant would be given an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now, what does it mean to be marked with these names? Well, to be marked with the name of God means we belong eternally to God as his children. To be marked with the name of God's city means we have eternal citizenship in that city. To be given Jesus' own new name is to be identified intimately with the one who bought us at the price of his own blood. Verse 13, our final verse this morning. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's hear the promises that Jesus gives to his church in these letters. Let's hear the commendations he gives to his church in these letters. Let's hear the criticisms and the exhortations and the commands that Jesus gives to his church in these letters. And church, let's respond to Jesus. Not be hearers only, but doers of his word, as the church in Philadelphia was, even in times of trial and in times of opposition and times of trouble. The voice that we have been listening to in these seven letters is the voice of our king. Amen? It's not Pastor Brent's voice. It's the voice of our king. The voice is of the one who sacrificed his life on our behalf so that we who fall short of the glory of God might receive a not guilty verdict before him, and so that we might receive a righteousness that is not our own. Church, may we hear the voice of our beautiful, crucified, and risen, and soon coming King and may we be doers of it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we as your church ask your forgiveness for our, in some cases, willful disobedience of what you have commanded. And we know, Lord, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And so we claim your forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would so work upon us as your church that you would get great glory from us, that you would be magnified and exalted from our witness here in Montreal and abroad. Lord God, that you would be pleased with us and that that day, when that day comes, that we will meet you face to face, that you will say to us, 
well done. Lord, we can't wait to see you face to face. So I pray, Lord, for each and every person here, work in our lives. Give us enablement, power, perseverance, faith, hope, and love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.